This is the Evergreen Empire. Green grow the forests and fair clothed the streams. The gentle deer grazes, the wild blossom gleams. From ocean wave raging to mountain serene. All nature's proclaiming our land's evergreen. Welcome to Columbia Conversations. I'm Felix Bennell, editor of Columbia Magazine for the Washington State Historical Society. On this episode, we speak with historian and journalist Cassandra Tate. She spent the past decade researching and writing a new book called Unsettled Ground, The Whitman Massacre and Its Shifting Legacy in the American West. And she said that no one in her family, as she's a child growing up, would talk about it. They, they just said, we don't talk about that. I spoke with Cassandra Tate by phone from her home in Seattle, just before her book was released in late 2020. The Whitman incident, as many people call it now over there at the, the mission there in Walla Walla, so many books written back in the 19th century and a few in the 20th century. Why was it time to write another book about the Whitmans? Well, that's an excellent question. My interest was generated by, you know, the story that I heard when, as an elementary school student here in Washington, in Seattle. And the story that was told was about this heroic, beautiful woman, Narcissa Whitman. With every telling of the story of Narcissa, <laughs> she became more beautiful, more blonde, more blue-eyed, more heroic, more angelic. And I just had this image of her, noble, self-sacrificing, uh, came to save the Indians from burning in the fires of hell, and they were ungrateful enough to rise up after 11 years and and kill her and her husband. And the image that I had was of a, a savage hand holding a knife, slashing her long white throat, and the blood pouring out of her neck down the front of her billowing white gown, and it titillated and thrilled me in, in ways that, that, you know, so many, many decades later, I, you know, I could still conjure up that image. And by then, of course, I had learned, uh, you know, much more about who the Whitmans really were and what they really did and, and their relationships with the Indians among whom they settled and the reasons for the attack that, that led to their deaths 11 years after they had come into the country. And I poked around on this story, the edges of the story, for quite a number of years. I ended up working as a newspaper reporter in Lewiston, Idaho, which is very close to where the other missionary couple, the Spaldings, settled by the time these two women, by the time these two missionary couples had crossed the continent, they were scarcely speaking to each other. And so the, the Spaldings went 120 miles to the, to the northeast and settled among the Nez Perce at Lapway, very, very close to Lewiston where I was working. And I saw the monuments to the Spaldings there and was curious about it. Um, and then moved, you know, back to Seattle and was at the UW campus and saw Whitman Court. Um, there's, my uh, granddaughter ended up living on Whitman Street in Shoreline. <laughs> I could, you know, they're still scattered around the Northwest, and indeed across the route that they followed from their homes in upstate New York to 
to the West Coast, there are monuments and roadside markers and um, other memorials to to this couple. They were, I, I know that you know this, Felix, they were among the most celebrated uh, figures in Northwest history for a while. And how they haven't, you know, how they became celebrated, what they actually did, uh, how their legacy is now being questioned and criticized. I think it's a fascinating historical story. You know, my fear is it's that, you know, the, the Whitman story, you know, once you start digging into it, it's, you know, there's so many different directions it goes and everyone sort of, it's a Rorschach, you know, that people saw in Marcus Whitman what they wanted to see. Um, my fear is that the story is so complex and nuanced <laughs> That I mean, that there's a reason why they, they told you that simplified story in elementary school, you know, when, when they did, because it sort of it sort of defies uh, defies contextualization, unless for someone's a very patient scholar in some ways. Did you ever sort of fear that when you were putting together your narrative and sort of you know leaving things out or having to sort of I don't know file things down in order to fit into the the format that your that your book is in. I think the thing that concerned me most at the time and throughout the whole process was digging out the Caillou side of the story. The Whitman's, for those of your readers who aren't as engrossed in the story as you and I are, um, the Whitman settled on Caillou's land near Walla Walla. They were invited to do so by, at least as far as we can tell, from the letters that they left because there's Really, there's no written record of what the Cayuse thought at the time or what their motives were, but as best as I could piece it together. That was always the challenge for me in approaching this work, how to get the Cayuse side of the story, given that this is a, you know, a people who have an oral history and, as I understand it, immediately after the attack, on the, on the Whitman mission, which killed the Whitmans and 11 other people in 1847. The Cayuse were branded as murderers. Um, it was a small tribe to begin with. Their numbers had been decimated by a very uh, virulent outbreak of measles, which they attributed to the influence of the missionaries. And because of, as I understand it, um, because of the opprobrium heaped on the Cayuse tribe at the time of the attack, the oral history was broken. At least it's, it's harder to retrieve now. I spent uh, my best informant on this subject was um, Roberta Connor, who's the director of the Temascalit Cultural Institute on the uh, Cayuse Umatillan Walla Walla Reservation near Pendleton. And she, you know, she said in her own family, she is related to um, some of her ancestors were involved in the Whitman incident and the Whitman um, aftermath. And she said that no one in her family, as she is a child growing up, would talk about it. They, they just said, we don't talk about that. And so um, my point is that the oral history chain was broken. Uh, there are, you know, a few strands left, but that's the most difficult part of the story that, to, to tease out, and that was my biggest challenge, and, um, you know, I don't, it's, it's to the future to decide how will I, I pulled it off. 
And I mean, here it is. What is it? Terrible doing math like this sometimes. 173 years later, we're talking about now this fall, right? 170. Yeah, 173 years. I mean, are there still? Is it still a wound for the Cayuse? Are there still? Is there still sort of like bad blood, or does time heal all wounds? I mean, what's the what's the current status of the people you've checked in with and doing that, getting that Cayuse side of the story in particular? My general impression is that they're less interested in talking about the Whitmans and what the tribe is doing these days, and they're doing very well. Um, Roberta told me that uh, she, she's been involved with this um, cultural center since it was opened, and she is an enrolled member of the tribe. And she talks about you know the annual meetings when uh, the enrolled members are asked to identify which of these three tribes they identify with, Cayuse, Umatilla, or Walla Walla. And in the early days, no one would claim Cayuse heritage, as she says. Now, increasingly, they do. So, you know, they'll just get more hands raised, you know, when the Cayuse uh, affiliation is called out. So that suggests that um, it's no longer a, a source of shame. Um, and But, you know, I, my impression was that they still would rather talk about what they're doing today. You know, they have all kinds of economic enterprises going on they they're in, into um solar power wind power and and uh computer power so they're more focused on today and the future than on the past that is again my impression i'm an outsider and yeah. um yeah. i i speak with that that caveat i understand yeah uh, and now in that at that time of the I don't know the late nineteenth century when different people were mythologizing Whitmans for different motives or different reasons, um, it, it seems like uh, there were some things that were just that were wildly untrue that were just completely extrapolated. Um, do you have a couple of sort of favorite examples or one or two examples of sort of myths about the Whitmans that took on larger than life status? Well, I suppose the primary myth would be that Whitman saved Oregon. Um, Oregon country at that time consisted of a, a, a huge swath of the Northwest. The present-day states of Washington, Oregon, and Idaho, and parts of Montana and Wyoming. And this was an area that um, the United States had had gained uh, some measure of control over, but had not exerted its uh, its, its full authority. The, there was an issue, debate about whether that uh, Oregon territory, consisting of that vast geographic area, would be admitted to the Union as a territory, as an organized territory, in which slavery would be permitted. And so this is a debate that goes back uh, uh, as soon as there was a, boundary dispute. I mean, I'm trying to not get too tangled up in the weeds here, but a boundary dispute between the United States and British Canada about where would the border between those two countries be set? Would it be at the 49th parallel? Would it be at the Columbia River? And that dispute was not settled until um, 18... what? 46. 1846. 
Yeah. When was that boundary dispute settled? 1842? Uh, June 15th of 1846, the treaty, the, uh, yeah, the Treaty of 1846, okay. yeah. It's, it's not settled until 1846. The United States didn't, still didn't take any steps to organize the territory, meaning that it would establish any kind of a federal presence in the, in the territory, judicial, military, um, trade. So it, because Congress was still debating whether this region would be open to slavery or not. The myth that Whitman had saved this vast region to the United States um, developed shortly after his murder. Um, and, the, and the myth was that he had made a valiant, uh, dangerous midwinter ride from Walla Walla to Washington, D.C. to convince the government that Great Britain was about to claim that region and that the United States must act quickly uh, lest it be traded off for a cod fishery. That that was the kind of the, the myth, a little detail added to the myth. Um, and that he had personally convinced President Tyler to to go ahead and declare suzerainty over the the Pacific Northwest. And you know, it's it's not. He he did make a none of it was true. He did make a except that he did make a dangerous and challenging midwinter journey on horseback, mostly from Walla Walla to to um, Boston, but his goal was to convince his missionary board to continue to finance his mission. And, and he, he did change the function of his mission, which was initially to save Indian souls from hell, and new mission to encourage colonization by white people, Christian white people, um, Presbyterians in particular. Um, to, to come and colonize the West. He became convinced that that the Indians needed good role models um, if they were going to be saved. So he wanted to see the, the country turned into like little New England. So that's, you know, myth number one, that if, if he had not convinced President Tyler and Congress to um, organize the um, Oregon Territory, that it would have, we would now be... Um, um, all Brits. And I guess the other part of the myth just was how, um, just how noble and, and self-sacrificing he and Narcissa were. I, I think really they, there's, there's an element of self-aggrandizement in those two people that, that by devoting themselves to, to this cause, you know, they they gain a little. They gain coin in 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 the spiritual realm. Do you know what I'm trying to get at? That they kind of ensure that they're going to get to heaven because they have done this self-sacrificing thing by saving, you know, these Indians. Yeah, I was going to ask you, and you know, going through the primary materials and reading the letters and journals and things that I'm sure you read and. You know, over and over again, as part of the research, um, did you get any sense of the personality beyond the kind of iconic, 
heroic figures that, that we were talking about earlier. Did you get anything any more subtle or nuanced read on what they were like as individuals? I think so, um, especially Narcissa. Narcissa wrote um, very well uh, in another kind of era. She she would have she would have found her her way as a writer. I'm sure. She. Um, but she, you know, she's a product of the you know, Victorian era. She had no, her her path in life was very constrained. She's a middle class white woman growing up in upstate New York. She basically had um, a wife and, and motherhood as her path in life. She was uh, the oldest of uh eight kids, I think, anyway, uh, oldest daughter and uh, responsible for a lot of the domestic chores in her household. Her mother was a very, um, much a martinet, um, very, very devout, pious woman, and wouldn't allow her her daughters to read what she considered frivolous material, but she did encourage them to read about the lives of noble, self-sacrificing female missionaries. And it became like the romance novel um, equivalent for Narcissa. She's reading these stories about women who go off and die heroic deaths in far-off countries, and they're celebrated and mourned and and martyred. And I think that it appealed to her as uh, just the romance of it. And and it was you know an alternative to what would otherwise be a very predictable kind of. Uh, life for her to, you know, just continue on like she, she was, but with a family and uh, husband of her own instead of being in her mother's household. As for Marcus, um, he had wanted to be a minister, um, and he, he, just, he, he did not write as frequently or as well as she did, but he um, he aspired to, to a ministerial life. Becoming a minister in the in the 1800s was much more difficult than becoming a medical doctor. A uh, physician had to have a bachelor's degree and uh, and then go to um, a seminary. So it's like you're talking uh, beyond high school, at least six years of further education. On the other hand, you could become a licensed doctor with um, two six-week terms in a medical school and uh, an apprenticeship to another physician. It's called writing, you know, writing out with the doctor. So it's a very short and um, uh, swift route to uh, livelihood. So he's tried to be a minister. He, he didn't make it. He, you know, try, he became a doctor, and then he, he made a second attempt to try to become a minister and, and, and didn't make it, didn't have the money to pay for it. Um, and so becoming a medical missionary was, um, a way for him to sort of combine uh, um, those those two professions, and so again, there's an element of self-aggrandizement in in both of their motives, uh, to my way of thinking. Mm -hmm. And um, are they remembered much, if at all, or celebrated in their hometowns? Yes, they are. Um, I visited, um, you know, the places where they grew up, and there are monuments to them all over the place. Um, Narcissa Whitman's house uh, in um, in Angelica, New York, is a uh, you know it's been moved from its original site, but it's there. 
and it's um, open to the public, and so people can see, you know, idealized portraits of her, and mm. and and read about her, and and she's 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 particularly celebrated as somebody who who set out on a, a very dangerous journey, one that very few. This is a point I was trying to make earlier about these two women. When they they all grew up in the same kind of general area of upstate New York um, and were products of the Second Great Awakening and, and, and that revivalism impulse of, of uh, the mid-19th century. Um, they undertook this journey going across the continent at a time when very few men had made that journey and no women. And I, I really am confident in being able to say that no woman had made that transcontinental journey from one coast to the other. Certainly indigenous women had crossed the Rocky Mountains and certainly indigenous women had made long and arduous journeys, but there's no record of any of them going that entire route. Hmm. Um, and Narcissa women got pregnant halfway through, which was a, an advantage in one sense because she didn't have to deal with menstrual flow anymore. Hmm. But she's also pregnant at a time when the journey is becoming particularly arduous, and she's doing it, most of it, riding side saddle. Hmm. And I have seen side saddles, and they're awful. I mean, your body gets twisted. You know, your legs are on one side, and your torso is twisted to the other side. You, you know, it's very precarious. Narcissa was a better rider than than um, her companion Eliza Spalding. But Eliza, when she set out, she was recovering from a stillbirth, mm-hmm. and probably also had tuberculosis. And um, was a less, you know, a more tentative writer and was thrown several times and one time dragged by the one stirrup on the side saddle mm. over very rocky, rough ground. It's just, wow. you know, I, you have to admire their toughness and their willingness to, to go out knowing that it was very, very unlikely that they would ever see their homes again, ever see their families again and going into wild country, knowing they would face danger, whether it's from nature, wild rivers to cross, you know, undammed rivers, uh, or from, uh, you know, wild Indians or even wilder mountain men. It's, it's, you know, it's a matter of, like I said, few men had made that journey and no no women. So uh, I admire that about them. They're tough Tough women. I was going to say, it sounds like something like a, like a trip to Mars or something nowadays where it'd be like, you know, multiple years away. And um, so it sounds like given that even in spite of the self-aggrandizing parts of their personality you talked about, you did, you do still admire the two of them? I admire qualities, yeah. you know, their, some, some of their qualities, their <laughs> self-sufficiency. I mean, they, you know, they had to build their homes from scratch when they got out there. They you know, they had to work extremely hard. It's like it's endless. They uh, now all four of these people, um, Marcus and Narcissa Women and Henry and Eliza Spalding, ha- had grown up um, 
with a certain level of self-sufficiency. I mean, they're growing up at a time when people made a lot of their own stuff. Uh, they knew how to, the women knew how to um, weave the cloth, how, how to make soap, how to cook over an open fire, and, uh, um, how, you know, just all this, you know, the stuff that we go to the store for, they had to make it themselves. Now, not all of it. I mean, there was a very well-established emporium at Fort Vancouver, uh, and they did buy a lot of stuff from the uh, uh, Hudson's, that was the Hudson's Bay Company yeah. Post, and they bought a lot of their provisions and dishes and, and cloth from them, but they still had to sew their clothes and, uh, um, well, and imagine cooking over an open fireplace for years. <laughs> And you've got a long skirt on, and it's easy to get your skirt, you know, caught in the fireplace. I mean, it's just... Yeah. So I admire their self-sufficiency. I admire their toughness and, and the fact that they were very hardworking. On the other hand, they were arrogant. They were, you know, com uh, completely convinced that uh, the way white people lived was superior to the way anybody else lived, including Catholics. I mean, they, you yeah. know, they... Uh, they reflected the racist beliefs that were common among white people in their day. They believed that Native Americans were inherently inferior to white people and were doomed to extinction unless they could be taught or, or compelled to live like white people. And that means getting rid of every vestige of, you know, Native culture and tradition. And so, you know, we, they, they just felt, they felt no, they had no appreciation or... Um, understanding of of native um, uh, traditions or technology or values. And speaking of technology, if they had, they, they could have lived more comfortably had they adopted some, at least some, you know, native um, technology, you know, including using solar power as a food preservative, including, uh, I mean, even their houses, um, the you know Nate, these Cayuse and and their relatives um, the Walla Walla Valley lived in in uh, Thule frame Thule houses uh, Thule lodges that were you know relatively comfortable easy to put up uh, they the Thule is a kind of sedge it swells when it's rainy so it becomes kind of watertight it loosens when it's dry and sunny so it becomes um, you know, more comfortable against the summer heat. And, uh, but the Whitmans, like, you know, like colonizers and pioneers everywhere, they wanted to recreate the familiar. So they, they built houses, you know, that looked like what you could have seen in a New England or upstate New York village at the time. And, and, and looking back now, and here it is, you know, again, 173 years later, um, and there's all the places you mentioned that are named for Whitman, and there's Whitman County and everything, and there's a statue of Whitman at the Capitol. Is it, are, are, do any of, those, any of those sort of namings of things or statues need to be revised or taken down or put away or otherwise reinterpreted? Oh, the statue thing. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I think uh, I saw something in the New York Times maybe a couple of years ago about how we don't need to like them, we just need to understand them, yeah. you know, put them into context. Yeah. Um, 
I, uh, it's, yeah, they're part of a very, the women's have become part of a very contentious national, national debate about who and what should be memorialized in America. Um, I, <laughs> and I know that you are a statue defender, Felix. I think you said something like, they'll take them down over my dead body or something like that. I don't think I quite went that far, but yeah, I was, I've, <laughs> I've, I've evolved to beyond like, you know, if, if, if people want to, anyway, it's, it's, my my thinking has evolved on that because I feel like there if, if if enough people want to rip something down, it that sort of becomes part of the story too in a way. You know, it's sort of you can't really hold back the tide of not not revisionist history, but of just you know progress as reflected by what people choose to choose to revere or choose to respect. But yeah, you're right. They're, so they're caught up in this right now. So I mean, the, yeah, yeah, exactly. I. Um... I don't feel strongly about one way. I kind yeah. of like that Whitman statue, actually, because he's, yeah. you know, it's so, it's, well, you talked about, you asked me about the myth. Well, the myth is that he was this really, you know, buff, uh, you know, forward-looking, you know, pie, swaggering pioneer guy with the coonskin cap and the buckskin fringe, and he he was... He would have been absolutely appalled to see himself represented in the way that he is represented in the U.S. Statuary Hall, one of Washington's two uh, honorees in that particular uh, collection of statues. He and uh, uh, a Catholic nun uh, who built hospitals in the in the West. I think he would be as appalled to be depicted himself wearing buckskin, which is a, a substance he associated with heathen culture, and to be sharing uh, uh, being memorialized, memorialized in, a, in, in a hall of honor with a Catholic nun, as he thought Catholics were about as pagan as, as uh, the heathen. Um, Anyway, see, I got the track again. Have you, had any, <laughs> have you had any inquiries about a screenplay for the, the film version starring Charlize Theron as um, <laughs> Narcissa Whitman? That's right. And who, who's going to be Marcus? Well, oh, be Leonardo some... DiCaprio, probably. He might be. Oh, he, yeah, there you yeah. go. Brad Pitt's probably aged out of but it. But anyway, what do you do with the statues? You know, I, I, I don't think, you know, tearing them down is an answer. Forklifting them to other locations, that's a possibility. And so we could have maybe a, a, a hall of dethroned heroes or something like that. But it's interesting, you know, who put up the statues and why did they put up the statues and what, what were the statues intended to represent and celebrate at the time that they were erected which is normally, you know, some decades after their actual lives. So what did they, you know, what was the function of the memorialization in the first place? And then, you know, look at, 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 at how the context changed um, and put somebody new, like, you know, uh, um, Billy Frank has been suggested as a replacement for the Whitman statue in, in the U.S. Capitol, and, and, and why not celebrate him for a while? And inevitably, at some point, <laughs> I can, I can, <laughs> I, 
I can guarantee you that Billy Frank will be reevaluated and somebody will call for his removal <laughs> and he will be replaced by somebody who reflects the values and the politics yeah. of this future era. So a self-destructing statue then that after 20 years just explodes is probably the way to go moving forward. <laughs> um, but one, couple, one last question for you. Um, again, sort of a... a uh, you know about the the semantics really of the notion of the the Whitman incident that they now use down at the historic site and the Whitman massacre, which is sort of more that that you know that sort of more romantic term uh, used over the last you know 150 years, and that you use in the subtitle of your book. Was that a lot of thought going to choosing that in the subtitle, or was it sort of a, was it easy to use that in the subtitle, or what what was your thinking about that? I think the whole business about the title drove me nuttier than working on the on the whole book we went i can't tell you how back and forth we went and in fact unsettled ground uh, was uh you know a, a pretty last minute suggestion for that title and it actually unsettled it um stephanie martin um uh, a uh interpreter ranger at at the whitman national historic site at walla walla um, was the one who actually first came up with the idea of unsettled. Uh, she said, how about calling it unsettled land? Um, but then the subtitle. Um, I'm personally uncomfortable with massacre. I, it, it, I, I held out for putting it in quotes, um, and uh, I don't know why it was shot down, the issue of the quotes. But... I think the you know the prevailing opinion was that that's what it's known as mostly that's the way the story has been told up to this point and so now that of course they don't use massacre at the historic site at all the Whitman incident or the Whitman tragedy or something else but uh I don't know you it, it, I, I, I guess I can just say that it was a point of contention and back and forth and back and forth and ended up with with no quotes and massacre. Maybe maybe quiz Jen about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it, it, I mean it's it's partly semantic, but it's also just partly in this different this different age and what things are called. You know that it evolves and changes over time. Same way the you know the reverence or lack thereof for statues. So it's just. That's a, the challenge, and that's—I mean—that's why you know I admire you for taking on the the task of writing a, a book about the Whitmans in 2020. That's that's a, it's it was well overdue. Thank you, Felix. Thank you to Cassandra Tate for speaking with me for this episode of Columbia Conversations from the Washington State Historical Society. Her book, Unsettled Ground: The Whitman Massacre and Its Shifting Legacy in the American West, was published by Sasquatch Books in November 2020. For more information about Columbia Magazine or to subscribe, please visit WashingtonHistory.org. I'm Felix Bunnell.